This morning, I am in week five of a sermon series that I've entitled Revival. And uh, thank you, Ryan Warner, for preaching last week. He did a great job, and I'm just glad that he could step in while I was out. Um, my hope in this series is truly just to lead us to a deeper experience of the life of Jesus, a deeper experience of God, that God would fill us with his life, uh, and that through us would bring his life, his redemption to the world. And up to this point, I haven't really tried to define revival, and I understand that for many of you, when you hear the word revival, depending on what your background is, you may have different things that come to mind. Um, maybe some of you expect, you know, when you hear revival, you think of some like, uh, you know, church service or prayer meeting where there's incredible ecstatic experiences and things like that. Um, that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. And I wanted to just take a moment to look at uh, one gentleman, Roy Hessian, in his book, The Calvary Road. He defined it this way, revival is the life of the Lord Jesus poured into human hearts. Simply, that's what revival is. It's the life of Jesus poured into human hearts. And he goes on to define some of the things that accompany revival. A new experience of conviction of sin among the saints. In other words, a sensitivity that what I'm doing is not just, you know, no big deal, but that it's, it's a sin and offense against a holy God. A new vision of the cross of Jesus and redemption. Truly a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he did for us. A new willingness on man's part for brokenness, confession, repentance, and restitution. In other words, not just, hey, there's sin, hey, you know, Jesus did this, but a really a cut to the heart that I want to put sin away, that I want to be right with God and right with others. A joyful experience of the power of the blood of Jesus to cleanse fully from sin and restore and heal all that sin has lost and broken. Joy, right? Not just Jesus died for me, but a joyful experience that my sins have been forgiven. A deep gratitude and joy at salvation. A new entering into the fullness of the Holy Spirit and of his power to do his own work through his people. Right, The victorious life that comes from walking by the Spirit, overcoming all sin, overcoming addictions, overcoming all trials and troubles in our way. And a new gathering in of the lost ones to Jesus. That it's not just about us, but it's a revival that leads to an influx of people coming to faith in Jesus. It, again, this doesn't have to be flashy or showy, right? Revival doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, everyone's rolling on the floor speaking in tongues and things like that, right? That revival just means a deeper life of Jesus in us. That's our prayer, that God would bring revival to our hearts, to our church, through us bring revival to this world. You know, three weeks ago I looked at the two preconditions of revival. I got that from Richard Lovelace's book, um, he, he talks about there's two preconditions of revival typically throughout history. And we looked at Isaiah's throne room vision of God in Isaiah 6 and where it showed up these two preconditions, an awareness of the holiness of God, that God is perfect, that he's other, that he is transcendent, he's majestic in every way. And then an awareness of the depth of our own sin, that in the light of a holy God, we are full of sin, that as Isaiah fell down saying, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And I want to dig this morning a little bit more into that second part, an awareness of the depth of our sin, because it's so critical to revival, an awareness of our sin, an honest evaluation of ourselves. And I just want to focus on one, one verse, really, this morning that's going to be the main text that we go from. It's the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, it's his most famous collection of his, his teachings, and he begins with this verse in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Why is that so critical to revival? Why did Jesus start there when he sat down to teach the crowd what it means to know God, what, what the kingdom of God is all about? Why would he start there? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the beginning of what's known as the Beatitudes, those statements where he says, blessed are these people, blessed are people with this characteristic. And it just means, in Christian, it doesn't mean you're happier, these people. It means approved by God. Blessed are those who are approved by God, who have God's favor, God's approval. So those who are poor in spirit, he says, have God's favor, God's approval. And there's something incredibly countercultural about all of these Beatitudes, right? I mean, you look at these and it just flies in the face 2,000 years ago and today of what the world would say is blessed, those who are favored. Here Jesus is saying it's those who are poor in spirit who are blessed by God. So what does that mean to be poor in spirit? Why is that so critical to personal and corporate revival? I, I, I guess if I had to define what it means to be poor in spirit, I would say this. The poor in spirit are those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt and dependent upon God for everything. The poor in spirit know they are spiritually bankrupt and are dependent upon God for everything. I mean, it's probably easiest to, to compare it to those who are poor in material things, right? He's talking about poor in spirit, but think about those who are poor materially. They have nothing materially to offer to anyone. They are completely dependent upon others. They are bankrupt materially, economically. And here Jesus says, it's not about material needs. You could have plenty of material needs, but still be poor in spirit. Those who are poor in spirit are those who are spiritually bankrupt, dependent upon God for everything. Probably best exemplified by the tax collector in Luke 18, 10 to 14, where Jesus said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So which one comes away blessed? Which one comes away approved by God with God's favor? Jesus says it wasn't the religious man who has so much going for him, who can outline his spiritual resume to God. He says it's the tax collector the one who has nothing to offer, who is spiritually bankrupt, and all he can say is beat his breast and cry out to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says he's the one who was blessed. He's the one who is favored by God. That's poverty of spirit. It's responding like Peter did when Jesus hauled in the net of fish on his boat, and he said, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. It's Gideon, it's Moses saying, who am I that you'd choose me? <laughs> choose someone else. It's Isaiah saying, woe to me, I'm ruined. 
I'm a man of unclean lips. That's poverty of spirit. Those who in the face of the holiness of God say, I have nothing to offer. What are you doing with me? I'm spiritually bankrupt, completely dependent upon you. Again, even those who feel like, hey, I look around at my life and I'm materially blessed. He says, it's not the same as being poor in spirit. Revelation 3.17, Jesus, speaking to the church of Laodicea, said this. <coughs> you say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It's the hymn we just sang, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. It's Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. It's Paul's words in Galatians 6, 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Again, this is countercultural, right? This is Jesus saying, the one who is favored and blessed and accepted by God is not the one who comes with his or her spiritual resume saying, look at all I've done. Look how great I am, God. Aren't you lucky to have me on your team? It's the one who, like the tax collector, comes beating his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. All my righteous acts are like filthy rags. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Remember again, this, this verse about poor in spirit is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, you know that he sets the bar pretty high on what it means to follow God, right? Don't even be angry with your brother or you've committed murder in your heart. Don't even look at someone with lust in your heart or you've committed adultery with them in your heart. Give to everyone who asks of you. Don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen by others. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And anyone who reads the Sermon on the Mount comes away thinking, I got this. Right? Doesn't know how to read. Or has a much more inflated view of themselves than they ought to. This is why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, those who realize that they cannot measure up to God's standard because he's about to give them a pretty high standard. But it's okay. Blessed are those who say, God, have mercy on me. In the face of what you expect of me, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. There is the mountain that you have to scale, the heights you have to climb, and the first thing you must realize as you look at that mountain, which you are told you must ascend, is that you cannot do it, that you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do it in your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize they cannot do it on their own those who realize they are completely dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. Those are the ones who are blessed. Those are the ones who are approved by God, who are favored by God. And again, this is completely countercultural to our world that teaches us self-confidence, self-reliance, self-expression, right? 
The world is trying to say, you got this, you can do this. Look to yourself, look within. And Jesus says the exact opposite. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who come spiritually bankrupt, looking to God for strength, for help. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean, hey, you're worthless, right? It's not saying that at all. It's not saying, blessed are those who think they're worth nothing. No, because we are all made in the image of God. But it's saying those who realize, spiritually speaking, they have nothing to offer. Nothing, no spiritual resume with which to stand before God that he might accept them and favor them. It's an admission that self-reliance is a joke. That as I said earlier, you cannot even take a breath apart from the grace and power of God. You know, James, in the book of James, he talks about, you know, how dare we say like, hey, next year I'm going to go do this and that. He says, you know, apart from the grace of God, you can't plan, you can't expect If it's God's will, we'll do this or that, he says. But I tell you that every breath, every morning you wake up, every step you take is a gift of God's grace. And to somehow think that you are self-reliant, that you live independently, is to fool yourself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So why is this so critical? Why does Jesus start there? You want the kingdom? You want revival? Start there by recognizing your poverty of spirit. Let me give three reasons I think this is so critical to revival. First of all, there must be an emptying before there's a filling. If God's going to fill us with his spirit, fill us with his life, there has to be an emptying. We have to come empty. We cannot come with anything in our hands, anything that we're holding on to. God's not going to pour out his spirit on self-sufficient, self-reliant people. We come empty, looking for him to fill us. Revival begins with emptying, with pouring out, with breaking, with submitting, with bowing down, with confessing, with repenting, (coughs) with emptying ourselves so that he might fill us. D.A. Carson put it this way, we cannot fulfill God's standards ourselves. We must come to him and acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy Emptying ourselves of our self-righteousness, moral self-esteem, and personal vainglory. Emptied of these things, we are ready for him to fill us. I like how Andrew Murray put it. He said, just as water ever seeks and fills the lowest place, so the moment God finds you abased and empty, his glory and power flow in. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who come empty, who come confessing, who come submitting. They will be filled with the life of God. Emptying ourselves means we no longer rely on anything about ourselves, our talents, our money, our education, our natural temperament, our family. We don't rely on any of that to justify ourselves. Remember how Paul put that in Philippians 3.8? <clears throat> he said, it's all rubbish to me. All of that. All the things I used to trust in, they're rubbish compared to knowing Christ. Anything that gets in the way of just coming empty, coming, submitting to him. 
There must be an emptying before there is a filling. <clears throat> Second reason this is so critical, that poverty of spirit is so critical to revival, is that God fills those who are desperate for him and trust in him alone. Revival comes to people who are desperate, who realize that they are empty, who realize that they are dependent, who realize their need. Those of us who don't think we have any needs, who are self-reliant, God is not going to pour out his life and pour out revival on them. It's those who are desperate and dependent. Again, as Roy Hestian put it, revival is not good Christians becoming better Christians, but rather Christians honestly confessing that their Christian life is a valley of dry bones, and by that very confession qualifying for the grace that flows from the cross that makes all things new. God fills those who are desperate for him, who trust in him alone. Isaiah put it this way. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord? This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who is the one blessed and favored by God? Who is the one to whom revival is going to come? It's the one who's humble, contrite, poor in spirit, trembles at my word. Or as he said in Isaiah 57, 15, which we read earlier, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You want revival in your life? You want the life of Jesus in your life? It comes to those who are poor in spirit, who are desperate and trust in him alone. I mean, even Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, even he demonstrated this complete dependence upon the Father. He said in John 5, 19, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So if even Jesus said, I'm going to live in complete dependence to my Father, then who are we to think that we can live independently? Instead, Jesus made this incredible promise in John 15, 4 through 7. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. He uses the analogy there of a vine and branches. I think if he was speaking in 21st century America, maybe he'd use more of an example of like plugged into a power source, right? That probably is something we relate to a little bit better. Like, apart from me, you can't do anything. You're unplugged. You're not going to work. You're not going to function. Stay plugged into me so that you might bear fruit, so that you might be powerful, that you might be able to be functional, productive. And then he makes that great promise in verse 7, that if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. That there is a level of oneness with God that I don't think any of us have reached, whereby the things that we are asking for, the things that we desire, are the things that he wants to give so that we're so in him and his words in us that the things we ask are according to his will. And they're given to us. 
Again, self-reliance is a lie. You cannot take a breath apart from the grace and power of God. And whether the analogy is that of branches to a vine or being plugged into the power source, it says, blessed are those who recognize their complete and utter dependence on God. Those are the ones he will fill with his power. Those are the ones he'll bring revival to. The third reason it's so important to revival, that we are poor in spirit, is this, that poverty of spirit produces fearless, grace-filled, joyful servants. Think about it. If you were truly poor in spirit, if you truly recognize that every breath I take is a gift from God, if you truly believed that it's not about my spiritual resume and what I have done or can do, but it's completely, everything is a gift of God's grace and mercy. How would that transform you? How would that transform our community if you truly believed that? If you truly believed that before a holy God, you have nothing of spiritual worth to offer other than to cry out with the tax collector, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And that when you do that, he does bless and favor and accept you. How would that transform you? I think first and first and foremost, you would base your entire self-worth on what Jesus says about you, what God says about you. Because you know that it's not about you and what you've done or haven't done. It's completely about his evaluation of you. And if you knew that he accepted you, that he favored you, even though you'd done nothing to deserve it, how would that transform the way you lived? The way you evaluate yourself, the way you care about what other people evaluate you. Think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. That is someone who is poor in spirit, who recognizes I'm accepted completely by the grace and mercy of God. And so I don't care what other people think of me, what their evaluation is of me. I don't even care what I think of me. It doesn't matter. The only evaluation that matters is God's. And he has said that even when I was a sinner, even when I had nothing to offer, he forgave me. He loved me enough to die for me. He poured out his grace and mercy on me. So I don't care what other people think of me. Ever take offense when someone says something unkind about you? Ever take offense when people treat you like a servant? It's probably because there's still ego, there's still pride, there's still things that we think make us valuable apart from the grace and mercy of God. But when we realize that our complete value is found in being a child of God, that he, while we were still sinners, died for us, it frees us up from taking offense, frees us up from caring what other people think of us. We know the truth about ourselves. We know that we're spiritually bankrupt. We know that we got nothing to offer. But God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. So whether or not someone thinks we're great or thinks we're terrible, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change who we are. It doesn't change our evaluation of ourselves because we know what God thinks of us. Look how that frees us up to be courageous, knowing that it doesn't matter what other people think. It just matters what God thinks. Those who are poor in spirit are humble. They're grace-filled. 
Because I know I can't look down on anyone else. If I know the truth about who I am, that I am a sinner saved by grace, then what gives me the right to look down on anyone else, to think I'm better than anyone else? My salvation, my self-worth is a matter of God's grace and mercy, undeserved, completely. I didn't earn it. I don't have a better spiritual resume than anyone else. I'm not acceptable to God because I'm preaching a sermon, because I'm a pastor. It's because Jesus died for me. So how can I look down on anyone else if I understand that truly about myself? I'm going to go out into the world showing grace to others, the way God has shown grace to me. I know the truth about myself, and I know that he died for me when I was at my worst. And so I can love and show grace to others even when they're at their worst. Because that's how God treated me. I can be honest about my sins. I can be honest about my shortcomings. Because I know that, again, God knows everything about me. And he still died for me. I don't need to hide. I can walk in the light with him and with others. And I'm willing to be a servant. Nothing's beneath me. I'm not some grand person up on a pedestal somewhere. I am poor in spirit. And so I'm willing to serve Nothing is beneath me. Nothing can offend me. I know that doesn't probably describe who we are right now. But the more that we understand this truth, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who realize, like the tax collector, I got nothing. (laughs) But to cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You are the one who's blessed. You're the one who's favored. You're the one who's accepted by God. And that is going to transform you to a person of joy, of gratitude, freed up from the evaluation of others, the evaluation of yourself, to be courageous, to be a servant. Nothing's beneath you. Nothing that you need to take offense at. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the preconditions of revival a vision of the holiness of God and a vision of the depth of our sin, recognizing that before a holy God, we're poor in spirit. We've got nothing to offer. But by his grace, we're saved. And so we come empty this morning. Come empty this morning. Empty yourselves, submit yourselves to God and ask him to fill you with his life. Fill you with the life of Jesus. Let's pray. Nothing in our hands we bring this morning, Lord. We lay down before you all the things that we have trusted in. Our pedigree, our good works, our talents, our material blessings. We lay them down before you, God. We don't trust in them. We trust completely in you, Jesus. Simply to the cross we cling. Father, in the light of your holiness, teach us what it means to be poor in spirit. To have an accurate assessment of who we are in the light of your holiness. That we might be freed up from criticism and evaluation. To trust in who you say we are. Fill our hearts with joy and gratitude. Send us out to serve others 
to love others, to show grace to others the way you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond in worship.